In this episode, I'm once again joined by Stephen Snyder, meditation teacher, author, and the first non-monastic Western man to complete the virtuoso level shamatha system of Pa Ork Sayadaw. In this interview, we discuss Stephen's new book, Buddha's Heart, a modern presentation of the Brahma Viharas, Buddhist heart meditations, from the perspective of absolute reality, awake awareness. Stephen reveals how deficiencies in his early practice and the inaccessibility of his heart saw him engage this powerful heart practice derived from early Buddhism. Stephen discusses the damage done in the American Zen community by deeply enlightened masters with underdeveloped hearts, abusing students, embezzling money, and more. Stephen lays out the two routes to awakening and how combining the Brahma Viharas with deep jhanic absorption can lead to profound spiritual insight. Stephen also talks about the counterintuitive power of forgiveness and his own journey in awakening the heart. So without further ado, Stephen Snyder. Stephen Snyder, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here, Steve. Well, first of all, congratulations on your new book, which has just come out, Buddha's Heart. Thank a you. modern perspective on the Brahma Viharas. That's two books in as many months. Right. Your other books to do with uh, stress management and so on. How's that working on two books simultaneously? Well, um, it was challenging at times because the audience was different. Uh, I had been a, a lawyer for a little over 30 years before I retired. And I really wanted to try to make a contribution into that world to bring in some mindfulness meditation and some stress reduction techniques. So that was really a labor of love to do. Um, and then the Buddhist heart book was really one I felt called to do. That's really more of a bullseye for me personally in terms of the communication and the teaching and supporting other people and uh, that journeying into the depths of our own hearts. Yeah, and I'd love to dive into the contents of that book, actually. Uh, but before we do, in our previous interview, you mentioned you were also writing a book, Stroke of Realization, about a quite severe stroke you had. Uh, that had a serious impact on your spiritual practice. What's the progress on that one? I, I would say I'm probably about halfway done with that one. Um, I've been uh, having some life changes, moving and some other things. So I put that on hold and getting the other books finished and out. Um, so I'm hoping to return back to that probably in January and I would expect to finish that next year. Great, exciting. Okay, let's look at Buddha's Heart, your recent book. I'd actually like to get into your own journey with these practices shortly because you've had an interesting trajectory with them. But first, I think it would be really worth defining uh, for those who aren't familiar, what are the Brahma Viharas? Uh, how are they usually thought about and practiced? And what's the unique perspective that Buddha's heart brings to the topic? Well, uh, the uh, normally the Brahma Viharas, which can be translated even as the abode of the gods but, uh, or that with the divine abodes, um, our, our traditional heart practices from the time of the Buddha 2,600 years ago have been practiced since then to this day. So they're ancient practices that open us up to uh, metta, which is loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, empathetic or sympathetic joy, and then upekka, which is equanimity. And part of it is doing these practices in such a way that we cultivate these heart qualities 
and we do them in uh, a particular way where we're, we're working with different, what we call categories of beings, different people, and we're doing that practice for them. And for some of the practices, we, we do them for ourselves as well. And it really helps uh, soften our heart, give us a stability, and really uh, put us more in touch with a healthy vulnerability. And the mechanism of those practices is really quite interesting. You talk about this idea of categories of being and starting often with oneself and then moving out to degrees of ever lesser degrees of familiarity. And in the book, you describe key phrases that are used also in the practice of Brahma Viharas. Could you explain a little bit about the basic mechanics of the technique? Sure, and, and you're quite right. The, it often starts with the individual and then it does expand. And, and the, the great aspect of that is that usually one of the category of beings is the difficult people or person. So people that we really have trouble with, people we might uh, routinely have anger or hatred towards. So it really helps us soften even there to find goodness in those people in addition to whatever it is that's triggering us. So we get to work with those. And as you mentioned, uh, there are phrases that we use in support. So the phrases help keep us oriented towards the meditation, towards the heart quality that we're wanting to allow to reverberate in our system and our consciousness. And the phrases are used, uh, again, as support. Normally, once concentration with the Brahma Vihara uh, deepens, develops, then the phrases can be shortened, sometimes down to one word, and then that even that word can be let go of because the concentration takes over. So one of the ways that I'm presenting the, Brahm, the Brahma Vihara is in a way that's a little bit different than how they're traditionally taught is there are a number of teachers that teach these, but do them as guided meditation where the student is led through the practices. And the way I'll do it on retreat is teach the people the meditation and then they'll do the meditation in a, in a retreat setting and then come to interview or ask questions if they have uh, issues or want to know something more more in depth. I think one of the interesting aspects of your own uh, journey with the Brahma Viharas is the depth at which you explored them with super-powered jhana-level concentration. I'd like to ask you about that shortly, but that's not how you started with these practices. You write in your book, I first discovered the Buddhist heart meditations in the 1990s. At the time, there were no books on the topic that I could find. I met someone who'd learned the practices while spending time in an Asian monastery. I was clumsy with the meditations to start, but could feel a growing connection with my own heart. At that point in my life, I saw myself as a head and belly practitioner, meaning I had intellectual understanding and a developed intuitive knowing in my belly, but my heart area was fairly inaccessible to me. Could you talk a bit about these distinctions between head, belly, and heart, and how they played out in your own journey as a practitioner and with these practices? Sure. Well, first I'll say that uh, really these are important centers in terms of our, our practice. And ideally all of these centers should be developed. Uh, different practices will address different of the centers. Uh, and it's also possible and ideal if uh, a student is to have insight, realization, awakening in the different centers. 
because the centers contribute different qualities to one's realization and integration of that. And so for me, I, I had, I think, a, a fairly good intellectual, conceptual understanding of Buddhism and Buddhist practice. You know, I often joke, I started in the Zen tradition, and I often joke that part of the theme of Zen is that, you know, there, there's a, a reliance on uh, or a, a rejection of words and letters is the quote. And of course, if you go into a, a spiritual bookstore, you're probably going to find the most books written on Zen. So there's a lot of books written about something where there shouldn't be any books written about, I guess. But I had read a lot of them in those days, there were a lot less books than there are today. So I had read virtually all the books on Zen in English. And um, so I felt like I understood the practice and what was happening with it in that regard. And also was having experiences really I could feel were sort of landing in the belly. And that really is the repository for spiritual energy according to some of the, uh, uh, the Asian models of medicine. And so I could feel that was happening, but I, I really saw based on my clumsy behavior and the fact that I was still stepping on toes uh, in my own life, meaning that I was unskillful in my interactions with people, I could see that that, that wasn't translating. I could have understanding, but I wasn't living from that understanding. So I would talk about myself as being like the, uh, the mute person that has an amazing dream, but can't tell anyone about it or can't communicate about it. What is it about working with the heart center that translates to living relationships more skillfully? One might think, well, awakening the heart center, one might feel more deeply, but would that necessarily result in better skill in relationship? Well, it's an interesting aspect of doing the heart practices, Steve, that the more that we interiorize in our own heart, it's almost like it does an inside out maneuver where the closer we get and the more intimate we get with ourselves, actually, the more connected we are with other people. And the more authentic that we are, the more we resonate and have authentic connection and meet others in their authenticity. So it's a little bit counterintuitive to how perhaps the society at large might think about this, but the reality is the deeper you go, you find that your, your heart, your heart qualities really are universal and they really resonate and are undivided with everyone else's heart qualities. So that really supports more intimacy, greater vulnerability, greater connection. In your own practice, as that started happening, what were some of the first things you noticed in terms of the way you were behaving as your metric? You said that's the thing that, that clued you in that maybe something wasn't quite connecting all the way. When you started working on those heart practices, what sort of things started changing that uh, showed you it was working, you were on the right track? Well, probably the main way I noticed there were two. One is I had, I had young kids at the time um, and I could tell my interaction with my children was changing that I was finding things that they were doing were less triggering to me. Um, and, and also that was true in my life at large, things that normally would be irritating, great on me, or be, I'd be reactive about. Sometimes I still would be reactive, but there would be a delay. So basically a pause before the reactivity arose. 
So I began to see that the reactivity was a choice. I didn't have to turn that way. And I began, um, I don't mention this in the book, but I began keeping a notebook and every night I would write down any interaction in the day that I felt was not in harmony with, how, with what I felt. And I began exploring each of these incidents every day, every evening, and began to realize how much of my reactivity was really uh, birth family learned. So I was, you know, in effect, mirroring, parroting my parents, my aunts and uncles, whoever. And I began to see I had choices in all these reactions and began sort of moving into my own personhood also. At this time, you'd done an awful lot of practice and had read an awful lot of things, quite well learned in the spiritual uh, subjects. But the heart was not yet as activated as it could be. Let's put it that way. I'm wondering, is it possible for a practitioner to really go very, very far in terms of insight or in terms of these head or belly centers and really miss the heart entirely? Uh, is, that, is that possible? Um, and, and if that does happen, what, what will be the consequences of someone very, very advanced in the other centers, but who, who doesn't uh, give enough attention to the heart? Yes, and that's, that is quite possible. Um, around that time, uh, beginning in, in the 90s and onward, in, in the Zen tradition, mostly in the US, there were a lot of, uh, or a growing number of teachers who were, for lack of a better term, getting into trouble with their sanghas. There were uh, inappropriate relationships, there were money handling issues, there were power dynamics that were unhealthy. And a lot of this, in my view, I knew some of these teachers, and my view was that a lot of them were very realized. They had big experiences, big emptiness experience, no self-experience in the head and maybe in the belly, but a lot of them really were not that connected to their heart. And by example, I remember going to one teacher and talking about a kind of unity experience, a oneness experience I'd had in meditation on retreat. And the teacher said uh, something to the effect, I, I don't know anything about this unity oneness stuff. I don't give it any credibility or something. They were very dismissive in other words. And so this was part of what began to move me away from the Zen tradition that I found there was just this, this lack of heart, and again, not in the entirety of the Zen world in the US, I'm not meaning that, but just there were, there were certain places where the teachers were really underdeveloped. And also their uh, students could be treated very brutally in, in the name of, I'm, I'm really trying to encourage enlightenment or awakening here, but really it was just an excuse to be uh, unskillful and also just sort of mean-spirited. And you saw quite a bit of that personally. I saw enough of that. I mean, remember, I was a lawyer then, and some of these Zen teachers, I was the lawyer for the center. So I saw them up close and personal, how they behave with their families and with personal uh, conflicts. So I could see that there were gaps between their realization and their behavior. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. You moved away from the Zen tradition, as you, as you mentioned. Um, Really, the, the key teacher for you after that point, it seems, was uh, Pao Ok Seyadol. 
and you write of your deepening uh, Brahma Vihara practice. I did not deeply undertake these heart practices on retreat until 2004, during a two-month retreat with the support of my teacher, the Venerable Paok Seador. I engaged these practices to a high level of absorption concentration called jhana. The practices penetrated not only my consciousness, but also the hidden recesses of my heart, which opened and were awakened through the intensity of the jhana level of concentration meditation. We talked in our uh, episode, uh, Stroke of Realization is the title for that episode, about that jhana retreat and about the really remarkable and powerful levels of jhana concentration. Uh, listeners will no doubt be aware that there are different standards of, of jhana, different standards of what constitutes jhana. Some require less concentration, some require really a lot. And Pao Xeodor is famous for having really rather high standards when it comes to jhana level absorption. To master a jhana, one has to be able to enter it and be unwavering in that absorption state for many hours at a stretch and come out on time as planned without an alarm, things like that, really quite remarkable. And you're, uh, we're talking here about the upper end of what, what is already a high concentration practice of jhanas. So I'm wondering, can you talk a bit about what effect bringing that level of concentration power to bear on the Brahma Viharas has? They are not always, it seems, practiced with such deep levels of concentration. Right. Uh, th this is the, the ideal, we'll say. Now, I will say it isn't necessary to do them to that level, to the level of jhana or absorption in order to benefit. Really, um, everyone can benefit from the heart practices and the Brahma Viharas at whatever level they're practicing them. But at the jhana level, part of what happens is that the, the jhana itself, the absorption concentration, is a non-dual experience, meaning that the sense of self is entirely absent. So there really is just your awareness, your consciousness, and the absorption, the merging with whatever the practice or the object is. So for example, in the case of metta, it's loving kindness. So we can conceptualize what it would be like to have no sense of self, no thoughts, no uh, awareness of the body at all. And all that, that is being perceived is this pure, intense loving kindness. So there's a way that it, it really feels as though the consciousness is sort of dipped into this, this uh, cleaning solution and the consciousness gets more and more purified and there is more of a purification of heart that happens to the point that um, one can actually feel this shift and this purification happening. And when the meditation, as you say, when the jhana ends on time, there's a way that one can be, it can be felt that there really has been something changing, purifying, cleansing that's gone on. And also that doesn't necessarily go back. You know, some of the habits of the mind may come back in relation to the heart and emotion and whatnot, but a lot of it doesn't. So it really allows us to start from a very fresh place and orient and land and ground in a different way. 
So that's why I think for me, it was really important to do it in that, in that manner. Um, and, but I, as I said, I, I think everyone can benefit from doing these practices and doesn't necessarily need to do it to that level. It's a potential, but it certainly isn't required. Yeah, this book is certainly less uh, athletic than- Practicing the Janus, right? Janus, yeah, <laughs> that, that's a high bar indeed. This, but it's interesting to me that you have actually practiced these to such a, such a level. Another thing that's interesting actually is the way in which you link uh, Brahma Vihara practice to awakening and insight. This bit was very fascinating. You know, you discuss the loss of union with oneness that happens in early development as a baby and the unquenchable heart yearning that is the consequence of that loss of oneness as the baby begins to differentiate as a separate self. And you write, there's only one way to fill this lifelong heartache, awakening to the presence of the absolute as your core identity. This hunger for love begins to be satisfied by a first awakening. A first awakening is an awakening to unending love marked by a transparency of ego. In a first awakening, consciousness merges with the ever-present awakeness that is the presence of the absolute. This awakening will likely be the first time our heart's longing feels quenched and soothed. The first awakening will also offer a path to deeply satisfying, real, unconditioned, accepting love. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process leading up to the first awakening, and also as somebody who's taken this journey very, very far, what lies beyond first awakening in terms of the Brahma Viharas? A lot of good questions there. Um, well, I think the, the first awakening, there's a couple of ways that can happen. Uh, and, and I describe in the book a little bit later in that section of my own first awakening. Uh, I decided to, to detail that in the book so people could see an example of what that looked like or how it unfolded. So, uh, th but there's a couple of ways in Buddhism that can happen in, in that particular way, which was really more of a Zen style. Uh, I, I ended up working with what became a koan or a spiritual paradox. Um, and, and it happened quite naturally. I, I write in there that I was reading a book, the Sixth Patriarch Sutra, and there was a line in the book produced the thought that is nowhere supported. And I found that that just lodged in me in a way that I, it didn't make any sense to me, but I couldn't just put it down or breeze past it. It just got wedged in my, in my consciousness really. Um, and so the traditionally, the experience of first awakening can be entered either from the side of emptiness, the side of no self, or from the side of unity or oneness. And some people start the experience of oneness is the first part of the experience. And that's the connectivity, the love, um, that they're an undivided part of the whole that's really felt deeply. And, and again, reminiscent of that dual unity that you mentioned of the baby but the baby's not aware, that's the difference, is they're not, they're not awakened to that, they're just in it, um, and it's happening quite naturally. So, uh, so again, there's sort of one entry through the unity, the love side, and then if, if it continues into a full awakening, then the other side, the no-self side, will also open up. And that's where the realization that I'm not this self I took myself to be. I'm really this 
no self or what I call no source is really the source. And yet it's not an empty or a cold uh, no self or, or emptiness experience. It's actually filled with love. So, so it really needs the complete uh, no self emptiness and unity love experience to really be a full first awakening. Otherwise, if a student came to me, I would say, well, that that's, sounds like a no self experience or that sounds like a unity experience, but I wouldn't talk about it as the uh, awakening experience unless both pieces were present where they saw themselves as this no source and, and also at the same time were with the magnificent universal love. So it takes both for that first awakening. And, and there's also a, um, a phenomenon in, in the Zen tradition that talk about awakening in a couple of ways. And one way is it's talked about uh, as Kensho, which is momentary glimpses. So it's really, I mean, literally just, just a quick moment of seeing in or when the self is put down or relaxed momentarily. And it, and it seems as though, oh, and, and let me finish that thought. And then the first awakening would be talked about as Satori. So, which would be more what I'm saying in terms of a, of a combined emptiness and uh, unity experience. Um, so, uh, and anyway, uh, it, what happens is with the, it seems with the small tastes that until somebody gets to what I've talked about before is 51%, when their consciousness is 51% or more rooted, landed, grounded in the no self unity, at that point, then it becomes where something happens where it shifts and that becomes the ground rather than the traditional normal self that most people take to be the real core of who they are. It's fascinating. You list uh, common resistances to the Brahma Viharas in your book, such as negative self-talk, resentment, and egoic behavior, which you define as inviting others to see us as we desire to be seen, to witness and mirror our most cherished self-image. And you talk about mudita, rejoicing in the happiness and good fortune of others, of rubbing against your own childhood conditioning growing up in a family with many siblings, vying for a slice of the finite pie of attention. And one might feel with Mudita, for example, well, hang on, if I rejoice in the success of others, how am I going to get mine? Who's going to look out for me? <laughs> right. Can you talk a bit about the resistances to the Brahma Viharas uh, and how the meditator in your experience as a teacher is likely to experience those resistances as they're practicing and then how to address them? Right. Um, well, the resistances are, are mostly uh, traditional resistances, meaning they've been identified for a very long time in Buddhism. So I, I didn't um, come up with most of these. Um, some of them I fleshed out a little more uh, than is traditionally done. And a lot of that's just working with students and seeing what comes up in terms of resistance or what kinds of memories and self stories come up in relation to doing a particular practice. And that's where I could see how much there were patterns of, of that humans bring to these practices. And I decided to call them resistances at this point 
and also include in the book some exercises to try to work with and flesh out the resistances. And for example, I'm teaching a retreat in January at Cloud Mountain in, um, uh, in Washington State here in the US. And part of that retreat, we're, we're gonna work with the resistances specifically as a group. So through group discussion, uh, try and flesh that out. And the main reason for doing that, Steve, is that I, I want people to feel normalized about it because it's very common when someone meets a resistance to feel that they're the only one that's struggling with, uh, for example, um, feelings of envy or jealousy, when in fact, virtually everyone is struggling with them on to, to different levels. So it helps normalize it in a way where we realize we take some of the sting and the judgment off of these qualities and realize that it's just part of being human. And so how do we work with them in a mature and real way? And that helps uh, take the energy out of those resistances such that we can be more open to these, the heart qualities of our deeper nature, our true nature, which is what we're accessing here. If someone is practicing uh, using the book to practice the Brahmi Viharas and they encounter some sort of resistance, how, can you give an example of how is that likely to uh, appear is it going to be thoughts? Is it going to be emotional uh, blockage or reactivity, an aversion to the practice perhaps? And what are the uh, methods of addressing them? Uh, is the method to simply continue and persist with the core Brahmavihara practice until these resistances are overcome? Or is there some other way of working with them? The, the traditional way to practice when there are any resistances in concentration meditation, whether it's jhana practice or uh, the Brahma Viharas, which are a concentration practice also, is to try to stay with the meditation. And if the resistance isn't such a, a big resistance, then the meditation will probably uh, move past that resistance. But really what I, what I find is that these come up and they come up in all the ways that you suggested. They come up uh, predominantly as memories for people as, um, as they feel it in their heart, like they'll feel, I mentioned envy and jealousy earlier. They'll be feeling just the, the, the envy and seeing the pattern and the history of that in their lives. And what's particularly hard about this is the judgments, is that we have a lot of self judgments about these things we know on some level we shouldn't feel this way, and yet we do. So how do you reconcile that when you want to turn toward this heart quality, but you don't feel like you're worthy because you feel as though uh, you have this insurmountable envy and jealousy towards others, and you, maybe you always have felt that way. So, so again, I've got exercises in the book, which is really to, to just talk about what's your history with envy, how do you notice it coming up in your life? What memories or experiences do you remember about it? And so again, a lot of it's just bringing it up in a way, hopefully that's fairly neutral and non-judgmental, and it helps just get it out there and normalize it in a way that people can then recognize, okay, yeah, that's, I've had that. And by simply recognizing that, that also invites a certain amount of self-compassion and self-love to understand I am a human and I do have human emotions and I have reactions to my relationships. So that's just part of the human. You know, it's like the first noble truth of Buddhism is that uh, suffering exists or unpleasantness exists. 
that's always going to be true. But the question is, how do we meet that? What do we do about it when it does arise in our lives? And in the same way here, envy may come up and jealousy may come up, but how do you meet it? Do you meet it with trying to suppress it and a lot of self-judgment and self-criticism, which doesn't help uh, the practitioner or anyone? Or do you say, okay, this here, here's envy, I'm feeling it. What is it like to feel that envy? So it really is letting it have uh, a stage to at least present itself internally. I'm not saying I share my envy with you or I tell you how I'm envious of uh, you know, you're, you're living on this boat. It's a wonderful <laughs> place to be. But, but it's, um, so, so again, normalizing and also uh, letting it have air. Because by, again, by taking the energy off of these things, a lot of the self-judgment really puts a lot of energy around these topics and these memories. And it makes it very hard to work with for that reason. You write in the book about the... Um historical biographical nature of some of these resistances that one may encounter in Brahma Vihara practice, to use the example of envy, uh, envy that's no longer really relevant to one's current situation, but it perhaps was layered in at a younger age. These sorts of emotions or these sorts of traits uh, are not so easy to detect and notice in the day-to-day -day operation of life. Uh, there's something that seems to be about Brahmi Vihara practice that uh, evokes them or uncovers them or can bring the practitioner face to face with some of these uh, counter traits to the, the traits of the Brahmi Viharas. Do you find that to be the case? And is there something special about the Brahmi Vihara practice that helps to address or relax some of these traits? Sure. I, I think in normal normal life, the average person probably has a lot of these resistances come up and most of them they don't really pay attention to very much because they come up with a certain regularity. So it's viewed as being part of a modern human that you're going to have these reactions. You're at work and your coworker gets a, gets a promotion that you wanted. Uh, what's that going to stir? And people will grumble and tell their friends and their spouse, you know, all these horrible things and, and then move on. But with the Brahmi heart practice, we're slowing down. We're particularly bringing our awareness to the heart area. And so a lot of the memories relating to the heart are going to come up. And again, as we explore the different Brahma Viharas, the different uh, heart qualities, a lot of the memories, both of the quality and of the resistance will begin to surface. And because we're doing it, particularly on retreat, we're doing it in a setting that's more quiet. There's less stimulation. There's, and, and because it's in silence, there's not an opportunity to vent to other people. So we're having to some extent percolate in our own experience. And that helps us really be with it um, in a way that can be inescapable, which is you know, to the good, because we can see it really clearly and then we can know what we have to work with. Later in the book, you write very powerfully about forgiveness. And you write here, most of the resistances to forgiveness, to releasing our memories of harm, rejection, or abandonment are intertwined with our self-identity. These resistances include believing we deserve others' harm, identifying with our anger, identifying with our hatred, and maintaining our self-definition as someone who's innocent, pure, and good. You go on to say, in my younger years, I was one of those people who on the surface appeared understanding and accepting. Beneath that public facade, I was holding back anger and deep shame. 
I had a keen memory of each instance when I was hurt or had hurt another. I would replay those scenes regularly to my dismay. I was a captive to my painful past. Can you talk a bit about forgiveness and uh, the role of forgiveness in this style of practice and also uh, your own journey with forgiveness? Yeah, I was, I actually felt touched to hear what you read. I think it's, and touched because I think that's how a lot of people live is they live with the negative stories, the negative self and other judgments of them. It, it, you know, our brains are wired to remember the negative more than the positive as a kind of self-defense. And so consequently we take in, when we hear negative comments or we hear criticism, we take that in and on some level, we allow that to be part of our, the tapestry of who we take ourselves to be. So really with a lot of people, there's a kind of um, a, a personal sense of unworthiness, unlovability, incompetence. Uh, really, uh, we, a lot of people feel and see themselves as, as close to failure, as really just barely kind of keeping everything going. So, so that negative self-talk and the negative messages and memories really have a very detrimental effect on our functioning and our state of mind, our peacefulness for certain. So it, it does, it is important to work with. And that's why, I mean, forgiveness is not a normal part of the Brahma Viharas, but I included that and gratitude practice because those are really powerful. When I teach the Brahma Viharas, I, I usually end the retreat. Um, the last evening we do the forgiveness practice. And at this point, people have been doing the different Brahma Viharas. So they've been very tender with themselves. They've been opening to their deeper heart qualities. And then to really look at the, the harm that we cause ourselves and others by being unwilling to let go of past experiences that were negative. And sometimes we hold on to those because we feel a certain power in, in holding the the uh, negative, particularly forgiving others, um, we really can hold on to that in a way that feels powerful. It's like, you know, the old expression that if, if you're angry and you, or you feel hatred towards someone, if they don't know about it, how is it actually harming them? Of course, it's really harming you because you're just, you're steeping your system with this uh, strong emotion. Um, so I think forgiveness is terribly important. And um, this is a practice that I have done for a while and I continue to do because there's always more layers of self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others that we can, we can be in touch with. And it really opens things up. I mean, I, I had somebody who, who read the book, an early copy of the book, write me and tell me that they had a family member that they were having a difficult time with and had historically and they ended up doing the forgiveness practice on their own. And they found that the relationship shifted with this family member uh, to, the, to the benefit, you know, to the positive. So it's, it's stories like that also, hearing people applying it and seeing the benefit that really confirms for me the importance of uh, a willingness to forgive ourselves and forgive others. You mentioned there the brain is wired to remember negative experiences for self-defense purposes, or you could say learning. And one of the reasons that people hold the grudge, I think, is as a sort of memento 
or a learning reminder not to fall for or be allow oneself to be uh, done wrong in, in such a way? How can one forgive while still retaining the lesson of the injury, for instance? How can one uh, forgive without regressing to the naive state uh, that was so easily exploited, uh, for example? How can someone retain the savvy without that emotional uh, pain to keep them on track? Right, it's a good question. Well, I think a couple of things here. Um, one is the irony of this practice is that really the softer, the more open, the more authentically vulnerable we become, actually the safer we are. And the, the way that works is that when we're in a much more open, uh, and by open, I mean hard open uh, sort of stance, uh, ironically, if, if something comes at us, hatred, for example, comes at us, then it's less likely to find a mark, meaning the arrow is going to miss the target often because we're just so open. We're not, we're not closed. We're not identified with the negative aspects of ourselves, meaning the failure, the self-talk uh, of failure and such where if we're ruminating there, then that arrow finds its bullseye quite easily. And yet if we're open and we're practicing the Brahma Viharas or have an open heart, it, it actually is a protection. So it's, it's quite a counterintuitive result, but it, it is the reality of um, doing the Brahma Vihara practice is we actually become safer, more stable and less likely to be uh, harmed or triggered people. It sounds from your presentation of the Brahma Viharas here and in the book that they actually uh, accomplish a lot of the aims and goals of contemplative practice, although somewhat counterintuitively, even in the dimensions of things like insight. One of the criticisms one hears of the Brahma Viharas is, well, it's just a sort of cultivating of uh, good emotions and good feeling. It's sort of feel-good practice. What use is it going to have in terms of waking up? You know, some people, they're meditating not to just feel a bit better. They want to get enlightened. They want to wake up. They want to see through illusion. And this sort of style of practice you might think of the Brahma Viharas. Why would I waste my time doing that when I could be doing a more, if you want, serious kind of practice in that sense? You write a bit about that in the book, actually, as one of the reasons people don't engage in Brahma Vihara practice. What would you say to somebody who said to you, that sounds very interesting, but I'm interested in waking up. What, what's the point of the Brahma Viharas for me? Well, I think uh, as we've been talking, there's, there's benefit to everyone just in terms of being more authentic in connection with their own heart and how they relate to themselves and others. So there's a certain social aspect to it and I would also say that the uh, Brahma Vihara practice, uh, because we're coming in contact with and penetrating into the heart qualities that really are heart qualities of our, our true nature, we really are turning towards our true self. And the uh, absolutely people can have awakening experiences. They can wake up to themselves as being love. They can wake up to themselves as being these different um, heart qualities of our true nature. So it absolutely has that, that benefit. And uh, I would also say that the longer I've practiced, which is 
I don't know the math, but I think I'm over 45 years now, is I've really seen that the heart and love in particular really is the rudder of the ship. It's, it's really critical that we develop our heart qualities as spiritual practitioners. And I think there are people who would like to wake up, who, uh, to awaken, who have not. And that some of those people, it's because the heart is underdeveloped. You need to have that heart quality too, in order to really uh, be open. Because part of the awakening experience is an understanding and realization that when there's an awakening in one area of consciousness, all of consciousness is affected. So in many ways, all of us practices literally for everyone else because we're interconnected. We can't be isolated and, and alone. So the enlightenment will look at, will initially will look at that as saying, this is gonna be my enlightenment and my personality and self is gonna wake up, but that's not what wakes up. Our consciousness is what wakes up to the fact that the no source is, has always been present. It's always been our core. It's always been with us without any loss or division. But we don't know that until there's an awakening experience to see the reality of it. That's fascinating. Something I saw as we bring this interview somewhat to a close on your site is you're launching a new 12-month mentoring program in 2021. It looks uh, really quite interesting. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that mentoring program. Sure, I'd be happy to. Yes, it'll be a mentoring program where it'll be a small group and we'll be working through Buddhist hearts, so reading sections, I'll be having the people do the exercises in relation to the resistances and then posting uh, in a group format, uh, particularly around the resistances they found the most juicy or the most pertinent for that topic for themselves. And part of that is again, to normalize that everybody has these and then also to get where people take away some of the sting of feeling that they're alone in these, in these resistances. And so this will be a chance for people to both work with that, which will help open up and connect them to the heart qualities of the Brahmi Viharas. And also we'll, we'll practice some with the unity, with the oneness practice, forgiveness, et cetera. So I think it'd be a great chance for people who are uh, called to really do a deep dive into these practices and uh, spend you know, 12 months really learning and deepening their connection and their understanding of their own process. And I do mention also that I'm, uh, I'm gonna be offering a two-year teacher certification program in 2022 and 23 on, on Buddhist heart. So it'll be on the Brahma Viharas where people will um, learn how to present this in evening talks and day longs and we'll learn to work with some students in supporting people in working with the practices and also the resistances. Because I'd really like for people this to be much more, um, have a greater impact than just what I can do. And in a lot of ways, this feels a, a bit like my legacy. I had a realization the other day that I think this book has something to say and I suspect it'll be selling long after I'm gone. And that, that actually makes me feel happy, the idea that these practices can support people in uh, more deeply getting to know their hearts and who they are really as um, the Brahma Viharas, the heart qualities of, 
the awake awareness. And part of that mentoring program is also one-on-one -on -one interviews with you over the year, I understand. Right, there'll be a group call each month and then there'll be one-on-ones with me every month working with whatever resistances or uh, benefits they're seeing. And uh, again, posting papers, reading, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating, that's great. Well, Stephen, congratulations on publication of your book, Buddha's Heart. It's Thank available you. now. Uh, I've seen it with my own eyes on Amazon <laughs> and places like that. So if, if what we've been discussing here is uh, interesting to, you know, you're listening and watching and you find it interesting, it is available now, Buddha's Heart by it Stephen is. Snyder. Stephen, thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.